right, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we're on page 959 if you've got one of our Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at home or you need a new one, feel free to take one of ours. It's our gift towards you. But Luke chapter 8, we're going to be starting in verse 40 today. And as, as you were praying, uh, Jeremy, I, I was reminded that I think all of us, we, w- we would love every single Sunday to come in here. We're just like on fire and passionate about God, that we walk through those doors and we just can't wait to worship and, and just erupt in worship and joy. And we've just got this amazing joy for the Lord. And there, there's probably a handful of Sundays, maybe that's, that's you, or you come in here and you're just super excited and, and ready to worship because some, maybe God's blown your mind throughout the week, something's happened, and, or, or you've read something and, and God's just really working on your heart that week. But if we're honest, most Sundays... You come in through these doors, and it's more like that prayer. God, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. That I, I, This week, I look back at it, and man, there's so many things that I've messed up again. Uh, I haven't trusted you enough. I, ha- I haven't loved others like I know I'm supposed to. I, I, haven't, I haven't done the thing. I've, I've been lazy. I haven't been disciplined. And, and all of these things come into our minds, and we're, we feel guilty as we walk through the doors often, and, and it's more, I, God, I need you to fill me up again. And you know what? That's, that's okay. I think often we come in here and we need to be filled up. And what God has been teaching me is this, that faith is very much a gift from God, okay? I, I want to make that very clear from the very beginning as we talk a lot about faith. That God has, this, Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that faith is a gift given to us, it is not something that we've earned. It is something that God gives us so there's no boasting in us, but we can only boast in Jesus Christ. But faith, any gift from God, is something that needs to be exercised by us. And so often, faith is like paddling upstream in a river. Okay, Have you, have you been kayaking before and, and you try to turn around and, and go upstream, or, or maybe you've been in like a lazy river, right, where you try to go the opposite direction of where the water's streaming. I know our, our family goes swimming next door at our neighbor's house, and they've got an above-ground pool, and it's a circle, and we've got a big family like ours. One of the fun things to do in an above-ground pool is to make a whirlpool, okay? Have you done that before? You get a bunch of people, and you go the same direction, and the current gets moving really, really fast, and then I love, it's kind of fun with my, with my boys especially, because they'll get kind of pinned up against the, the stairs, and it's kind of like they're a bug on your windshield, and they can't get away, but, but then at some point, you say, okay, let's reverse direction, and you have to try to go upstream, and, and it's really, really hard to do, but that's kind of like what faith is like. When you stop paddling, the current of our culture is constantly pulling you back, and so faith is very much like trying to paddle upstream. You can't take a day off. You can't, you can't just stop paddling. If you start to coast, you're going to coast backwards. And so you got to fight for it. But what we see in Scripture is the, the fight is so worth it because faith is so important. Just some of the Scriptures that, that point this out. Hebrews 11.6, you can't even please God without faith. It is impossible to please God apart from faith. Ephesians 2, again, By grace, you've been saved through faith. Faith is not salvation, but faith is the instrument. It's the the avenue which by God uses to save you. 
Acts 26 talks about we're sanctified. In other words, we're changed into the image of God through faith. Romans 14.23 goes as far as saying whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so the fight is worth it. It's worth it even when you, when you don't feel like coming to, to come and get, get filled by the word of God. And what Luke has been doing in this gospel is giving you a bigger paddle to be able to paddle upstream. He's giving us these glorious truths to understand about Jesus, that he is sovereign, that he, is, he has the authority over the natural world as he calms the storm. You can trust him. That he has authority over the supernatural, that even the demons bow down to him. This week we're going to see that he has authority over disease and even our, our worst en- enemy, death itself. And so as Paul would say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we need to be reminded of these glorious truths so that we can continue to fight and paddle upstream so the culture doesn't just sweep us away. And so let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this, this story. And hopefully Luke will, and God will continue to strengthen our faith. Father, we need to see how you see. Father, we need, we need endurance to fight the fight of faith, to exercise the gift that you have given us. And so I plead with you right now, help our unbelief. I pray that you would open up your words and we would see not what we want to see, but we would see the truth of your scripture so that it would impact our hearts and our minds so that you truly would be the greatest treasure in our heart and that we would walk away from here filled with your spirit, excited about what you're doing in our hearts, trusting you more and more for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up with me in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8, and we're going to read a little bit and talk about it a little bit. So verse 40, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And so if you remember last week, he had taken a, a boat across the Sea of Galilee and had done this miracle. He had healed this demon-possessed man, and they all rejected him there. Even though they saw this clear miracle, they rejected him there. And so he left, and he comes back to Galilee, and this is kind of his home base where he's done a lot of ministry. He's done a lot of miracles there, and so the crowd is waiting for him there. They're, they're hoping for more miracles, right? Verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So I want you to think about this. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, one of the most unlikely people to fall at the feet of Jesus, right? Jesus and the the rulers of the synagogue, the, the Jewish leaders, did not get along. In fact, Luke's made at this point, there's this growing tension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these rulers of the the Jewish religion, and they hate him because he's called out their hypocrisy. Uh, There's no love. In fact, they're they're starting to scheme a way to, to have him killed. And so it's quite amazing 
that Jesus agrees to that. I mean, this, is, this must have been his last option. I mean, he's probably called every doctor. He, he's done everything possible, and he's got no other place to go. And so, I mean, imagine what he had to be going through. He's so desperate. He, in this moment, he, he leaves his daughter. I mean, if you're if your 12-year-old only daughter is on her deathbed and she is moments away from dying, he leaves her. He doesn't know if he's going to make it back to, to see her take her last breath, to be able to hold her hand and comfort her as she passes. I mean, what, the risk that he's taking by leaving her, I can't imagine how difficult that must be, but he is so desperate. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He doesn't care about his colleagues in the, in the synagogue, what they might think or what they they might say he runs to Jesus. And there's a huge crowd around Jesus at this point, so he doesn't care. And he's a well-respected guy in the community. Everybody knows who he is and what he does. But he doesn't care what the crowd thinks or what they're going to say. He bows down before Jesus and says, come to my house. My daughter, my only, my, pr- my princess is about to die. He's that desperate. And shockingly, Jesus says yes. He doesn't even hesitate. You see the compassion that Jesus has here. I mean, this is his enemy. But Jesus sees this man's faith and he says, yes, I'll, I'll go. And it reminds us that it doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter. There's no sin that is greater than God's grace and compassion. And so you see that compassion here. And I, I can imagine Jairus is a little shocked that Jesus would agree. He's ecstatic, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure hope has started to fill his heart at this point where he had lost all hope. Now hope starts to rise in his heart that maybe I won't have to bury my daughter. And so I'm sure that that he's like, let's go. Maybe he grabs Jesus' hand and he starts pushing the crowd out of the way. Watch out, watch out. We got to get to my house. Jesus is going to heal my daughter. Let's go. And as Jesus went... The text says, the people pressed in around him. And then there's a story within the story. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And so... This is really interesting. All the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke share these two stories together. It's a story within the story. This woman had been suffering for 12 years, the same age as, the, as Jairus' daughter. She's been to every doc- doctor. She's spent every dollar. And so she, you can see the desperation that she has. Unlike Jairus, though, she was not a popular person. She, she was not a leader in the community. She was more like the lepers, okay? She was considered unclean because of this, this blood disease that she had, which meant she was unacceptable. In the community, she, she could not worship in the synagogue. She couldn't, even, she couldn't even be around other people. You go back to Leviticus 15, you can see some of the laws that were in place for people like her that were struggling with this, it was continuously uncleansed. Okay, she, she's ceremonially uncleansed, which means that if she touched something, that thing would be unclean. And then if you touched that thing that she just touched, you would be unclean. So she couldn't even be around anybody. 
She had kids. She had to make the decision, do I touch my ch- child and, and make them unclean? I mean, can you imagine being somebody in that, that position? That you're constantly unclean, constantly rejected by everybody around you. That's this woman. I imagine, I mean, the risk that she had to take to get to Jesus. I imagine she was maybe had a hood over her, her kind of disguising herself because everybody probably knew who she was also. And she kind of sneaks through the crowd and she, I mean, if somebody recognizes her, the whole crowd's going to erupt because how many people did she have to touch just to get to Jesus? But in her mind, she's thinking, gosh, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, that'll, that'll be enough. He can heal me. And what's fascinating about this is that when she touches the hem, Jesus doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. That's the power of Jesus right there. Immediately, Jesus knows that the woman has touched her robe. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter, of course, big mouth Peter, says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, I don't think Jesus was asking this question, who touched me, to gain information. I think he was asking this question to call her out, to bring her out in the presence of everybody so that she could share her testimony. And I would submit that this was actually the mercy of Jesus towards her. Because in this moment, it gave him the opportunity to affirm the miracle that just happened. Because think about it. If nobody knows that she's healed, how is she going to convince people that she's clean? And so Jesus in this moment is not just healing her physically, but she's repairing her, her socially by proclaiming to everybody in the whole crowd that, look, you're clean. He says, he says to her, and this is really fascinating, verse 48, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls her daughter, which is a, a really, it's a term of endearment towards her. He's saying to look, you no longer need to walk around in shame. You, you, you are accepted. You're loved. Your faith has made you well, go in peace. Now that phrase, your faith has made you well, go in peace. He's actually said something very similar. If you remember back in, last, in the last chapter, chapter 7, there, he went to eat a meal at a Pharisee's house. And at that meal, there's this woman of the city who comes in, who's probably a prostitute, and she anoints the feet of Jesus And Jesus says something amazing to her. He says, look, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's amazed because who can forgive sins except for God himself? But he says to that woman, as he lets her go, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And if you compare that verse to the verse that we just read about this woman who uh, your, your faith has made you well, in the original Greek, it's exactly the same. 
word, letter for letter. That, that word that's translated has made you well literally means delivered or saved. And he could have used, Luke could have used another word to communicate healed. He could have used the, the word therapeuo, which we get our word therapy from. But he doesn't. And I think it's significant because I think what he's implying there is that Jesus not only delivered her from her physical disease and her socially, the, the, the social disgrace that she was experienced, but he also was forgiving her sins. He was saving her from the punishment due because of her sin. He's saying, look, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So in an instant... She goes from being this person who is suffering physically. She's suffering shame socially. She's suffering guilt because of her sin. And in an instant, Jesus says, go in peace. You're healed. You're accepted. You're forgiven. Now, I want you to think back to Jairus here. I want you to put, put yourself back in Jairus' shoes in this moment. I mean, your baby girl is moments away from death. Your only hope is Jesus, and in an amazing God's providence, you find Jesus, and he actually agrees to go with you, and so now in this roller coaster of emotions, he's, he's coming to save your, your child, to heal your child, but then Jesus stops and seems to ask this ridiculous question, okay, who touched me? And you're with Peter, right? I mean, who cares who touched you? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. Let's go. We've got to go. We don't have time to stop and chat. And then your worst fear comes to reality. Look at the next verse, verse 49. While he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and says, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And I imagine Jairus in that moment just sunk to his knees. I mean, I can't imagine losing a child, period, especially one that's been in your house for 12 years. You've loved and you've cared for and you've changed their diapers and you've, you've wiped off their, their, their bloody bruises and you've cried with them and woken up at night with them and, and all of a sudden they're just gone. And, and that would be hard enough, but in this situation, I mean... The roller coaster that Jairus has been on because you've kind of been preparing your heart to let her go. And then all of a sudden, this hope comes that, okay, maybe I won't have to say goodbye to her. Maybe she will live. And then you get delayed just for a moment, and it's, it's too late. She's gone. You went from hopeful desperation to hopeless devastation. But Jesus, verse 50, on hearing this, he answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. I mean, I can't even imagine the roller coaster he's on at this point. And when they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. This is, this is the first time that Luke mentions that inner circle of Peter, James, and John together. We're going to hear about that later on in this gospel. Verse 52, though, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, 
for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And, and so the funeral has already begun. Back then, they didn't embalm somebody, and so the funeral happened very soon after the person died. And, and funerals back then were not somber occasions like they are today. Funerals back then, they expressed their grief very loudly with cries and mourning. They would actually hire professional mourners to come and be a part of the, uh, the, the, um, the process. It was part of their grieving process to let it out. And so that's what Jesus walks into the scene where they're all mourning. He says, don't, don't weep. And of course, they're like, what? You're crazy. She's dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, another term of endearment, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. I, I love the details that Luke puts in here. I mean, it reminds you that these stories are, are, are based in reality. Jesus is just cool, very cool, calm, goes to this little girl, says, child, get up. And then he says, get her something to eat. She's got to be hungry. She probably hasn't eaten for days, and she's 12. 12-year-olds 12 never stop eating, so she's got to be hungry. Okay, just shows you this story is based in reality. Verse 56, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Last week, if you were here, we talked about why Jesus would at times keep his identity a secret, that, that scholars believe that he, he wanted the Jews not to prop him up as some kind of political revolutionary so that the Romans would come and bring down their wrath on, on him before the appointed time. But I also believe that part of the reason that he told them to tell no one is that he didn't want them to focus on secondary things like healing and miracles, but he wanted them to focus on the, the main thing, knowing God and trusting him for salvation. See, we're all prone to, to focus on the gifts of God rather than God himself, and Jesus recognizes that. And so if you're taking notes, the the, the heart of the story, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I think we've got these, Laura, if you wouldn't mind putting up there, there should be some slides for this. The heart of the story, once again, is that Jesus has authority over disease and death. Jesus has authority over disease and death. And so our response to this glorious truth should be the same what he commanded Jairus to have. He says, what does he say to Jairus? Don't fear, just believe, which sounds really simple, right? But there are so many misconceptions. There are so many things that we get wrong about this. And so what I want to do for the remainder of the sermon is, is really just blow some of those misconceptions out of the water and hopefully paint a picture of what true biblical faith actually looks like. Because if you're going to fight for faith like we talked about, it helps to know what faith actually is and what it's not. And so, what is biblical faith not? Okay, biblical faith, oh, it's not, they're not there? Oh, they didn't download. Okay, well, just look at your notes. If you got your notes, you're going to see these. Okay, sorry about that. I thought they were up there. Um, biblical faith is, is, first of all, number one, not blind. Okay, biblical faith is not blind. Many people look at faith, and they, they think that they, they totally separate it from reason. Uh, they think it's believing in something without proof. But in the Bible, faith and reason are never 
separated. In fact, the, the faith that Jairus has and this woman has in this story, they, they were based on reason. They, more than likely, they had witnesses, at least, or maybe they even have seen Jesus heal people. And so it was based on either this, these witnesses that have come to them or, or they've actually seen him he, heal others. That's what gave them the faith. It was what they reasoned it. Think about the story of Abraham, uh, probably the most famous Old Testament story of faith that, that's there. Uh, Abraham, if you remember the story, he's promised by God that, look, you're going to be the father of many nations. And at the time, he didn't have any children at all. But then he has a child, finally. And God asks him to do the unthinkable, to go and sacrifice your only child, the child of the promise. Go and sacrifice him. And it seems that Abraham blindly follows the direction of, of God by taking his child up the mountain to be sacrificed. But if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, you see the rest of the story that, that Abraham was actually reasoning in that moment that God would raise his child from the dead. If he would sacrifice Isaac, that God would literally raise his child from the, from the dead because he reasoned that God would be faithful to his promises. He trusted in the nature of God, in the character of God, in the promises of God. And so because of that, he was able to submit to God in that moment and he exercised faith because he exercised reason. Faith is not blind. Reason and wisdom and, and logic are lifted up throughout Scripture. We don't check our brains at the door. So number one, truth, uh, true biblical faith is not blind. Secondly, though, true biblical faith is not simply intellectual. Some people think that way also. Faith, faith is not simply a mental ascent of the facts. Remember last week, we talked about the, even the demons believe they, they recognize who Jesus is. Even before the disciples recognized who Jesus was, the, or the, the demons recognize. They know who Jesus is. They believe in the facts of Jesus, but that's not enough to save them. So it's not simply just a, it's not intellectual. Number three, and this is hugely important, especially for this passage, faith is not a force. It's not some power. If you would Google sermons on this passage, the vast majority of them that you're going to find are going to make uh, this claim that, 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 look, if you've got enough faith, God will heal you. That's the application that they get from this story. It, that's the heart of what we call the word of faith movement or the, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. They, they believe that words can manipulate this force or this faith force, and, and can give them what they believe is the promises of God, what they believe God has promised them, namely health and wealth and prosperity, which if you read the Bible, God doesn't promise that. In fact, he pretty much promises the exact opposite for his disciples. But that's what they believe. And so they, they understand that the laws that supposedly govern this faith force are said to operate independently from God's sovereign will. And so even God has to follow these rules. And so with it, this is what they end up doing. They, they, it's idolatry. They, they turn faith into God and by extension themselves because they're controlling everything. And so they, they essentially, essentially make themselves into God. Okay, so faith is not a force. Faith doesn't unlock the power of God. Like God can be contained by something. We've got the key. 
Okay, it doesn't work that way. So faith is not a force. So what is faith? What is true biblical faith? What does the Bible describe faith as? I would say, number one, faith is trusting. Okay, the word trust and faith are synonyms, I think. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Often you hear preachers, and you've probably heard this before if you've been in church for a while, but they use the, like the chair illustration, right, to explain the difference between belief and, and faith. And they say, look, you can, you can, I can look at this stool or this chair, and I can believe that it's going to hold me up. Uh, it looks sturdy enough. And so you're using your reason to, to understand, but you really, that's not enough to save you. You've, you've got to actually sit in it. You, you've got to lean on it. You've got to rely on it. On it, And I agree with that, but you know what? I don't think that illustration goes far enough. I don't think that illustration really describes fully the faith that is described in the Bible. Because what, what if that chair is, like, uncomfortable? What, what, what if it doesn't look very, I mean, I, I don't, it's ugly, okay? I, I, it doesn't match my, my outlet. I don't want to go and sit in this chair, even if it could hold me up. Number two, faith is hunger and thirst. That's the language that Jesus uses in, in Matthew um, 5, verse 6. Jesus calls himself the, the bread of life and living water. You see, the reason why demons can believe all the facts about Jesus and still not be saved is because they, don't, they look at the chair and they think, I don't even want to sit in it. I have no desire to sit in it. It doesn't look like it's going to satisfy me at all to sit in that chair. They don't see the value. They know the facts of Jesus, but they don't see the value of Jesus. I mean, I, I grew up in the church. I knew all the stories about Jesus, but I didn't see their value until I got to college and God really began to work in my heart and start to open my eyes to see the, the beauty of Christ. And to look at him as a, as a treasure, not just a get-out-of-hell ticket. And that's how Jairus and this bleeding woman are. They, they hunger and thirst. They are so desperate to get to Jesus. They don't care what anybody else thinks. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 20 years later, after trusting in Christ, I'm still experiencing God opening up my eyes and my heart to hunger for Him more and more. I think that's part of sanctification, that He grows your hunger for Christ, that you need Him more than anything else, that, you, that that's the one thing that's truly going to satisfy you. That's why we've got to come here often. That you, you can't neglect going to church because the, you're, you're paddling upstream and the culture is constantly saying, look, there are other things that will satisfy you. And so you've got to fight for faith by being in the Word, by being around other Christians that are going to encourage you to trust in Christ and not in other things. And when your eyes are open to see the beauty of Christ and your appetite is wet to hunger and to thirst for His righteousness, you start to look more and more like Jairus in this woman in the story, don't you? Like, I don't, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm going to run to Jesus. 
I'm going to fall at his feet. I'm going to trust him because there's nothing else that will heal the sickness that I have in my soul because of sin. I need him. So true biblical faith is trusting. True biblical faith is hungering and thirsting. And three, true biblical faith is seeing how God sees, seeing what God sees. If you've taken an anatomy class, maybe you've studied the human eyeball. Human eyeball is fascinating. And if you've taken an anatomy class, maybe you've heard that the, because of the curvature of your eye, the image that your eye sees before it gets to the retina is actually upside down. And that information, that, that picture, uh, ends up going through millions of optic nerves and eventually it gets to your, your brain. And God has designed us magnificently so that our brains would interpret that data and flip it back right side. I think that's a great parallel, a great parable of, of faith. Your brain doesn't actually believe exactly what your eyes are reporting to it. Your brain knows the reality because it's learned to trust other sources of revelation to get what true, the true sense of what's real in the world. And think about back in Genesis, uh, the, the fall. I mean, Satan tempts Adam and Eve by questioning their view of reality. He says things to Eve. Did, did God really say not to eat the fruit? I mean, sure you, surely you won't die. He says this, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He changes their perspective. He flips their world upside down. They, they are not seeing reality. And rather than trusting in God's word, they start trusting in Satan's word. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And from that moment on, they began to see the world differently. They, they, first of all, they saw themselves, and what did they do? They put some clothes on. They, they saw themselves as naked and ashamed. They saw God as terrifying, so they try to hide from Him. And their kids inherit these same eyes, right? Cain and Abel, first story, after Adam and Eve. Cain sees his brother as a threat. He's jealous, and so he murders his own brother. And you could trace that same mentality, that same view, all the way to us, that we, we've inherited those same kind of eyes that see the world upside down, corrupted by our own sin. And so when God opens up your eyes to see the way that he sees, to have faith, what he's doing, he's flipping the world back the right side, right side up. You start seeing how he sees. And when that happens, something amazing happens. You, you, you start to look at death differently. I mean, how did Jesus look at death in this story? Death to him is just a nap. There's no reason to fear death if you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Church is, is not, if you're looking through the eyes of faith, church is not like a, just a building. It's not just a, a meeting that you go to. It's, it's family. The, the Bible is not just a, a book of rules anymore. It's not just a, bu a bunch of stories or fables that teach a lesson. It's, 
It's God's word. It's precious. It's, it's like fresh bread that sustains your spirit and builds your faith. It's, it's what you need more than anything. It's God's story of redemption. You begin to view yourself differently, like this woman who came to Jesus feeling ashamed of who she was, but left as a, a child of the King of Kings. And so my, my prayer this morning is that we would be a church that sees like God sees, that he would open up our eyes more and more every single day through his word. That's how it happens. That's, that, that's what unlocks our faith. It, God builds our faith by reading his word. So you've got to be in it. You've got to be listening to it. You've got to be meditating on it. I pray that we would be a, a church that would be so hungry and so thirsty for Christ that we wouldn't care what anybody else thinks. We would run after him every day. And that we would have more and more days where we come into this building, not, not like so often we do and say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. But we would come in here so excited about who Jesus is and so excited about what he's doing in our hearts that we would just erupt in worship and praise and we would long for him more and more. That's my heart. God would continue to open up our eyes and give us a hunger and a thirst for him, that we would trust him that deeply, just like Jairus, that we would run to him. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Father, we, we recognize that we cannot just drum up this faith on our own. We need your help. We need your spirit. We, I pray that you would make us so desperate for you, dependent on you, that no matter what we're dealing with, that you would be what we look to to be satisfied you would be what we look to for salvation. I pray for those in this room that maybe don't have a relationship with you. They've never truly trusted. Maybe they've, they've understood the facts and they believe in the facts, but they've never saw you as precious and they've never, they've never hungered and thirsted for you. I pray, Lord, that you, through your Spirit, would invade their heart and open their eyes to see how you see. And they would fully trust in you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.